Welcome to All Shall Be Well, a conversation hosted by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions, giving voice to women seeking to live fully into their God-given callings and be a redeeming influence, whether in the university or beyond. This is Caroline Trisick, and our guest on this episode of All Shall Be Well is Susanna Childress, Associate Professor in the English Department at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. I first met Susanna at the Festival of Faith and Writing at Calvin College, where she did a reading from her first volume of poetry, Jagged with Love. In my mid-twenties at the time, I immediately connected with some of the themes in that first work, including forgiveness, love, and longing for God and others. Now, nearly 15 years later, we sit down to talk about some of the prominent themes of this season of life, including being a woman in academia, the grief of miscarriage, being present with suffering, and much more. Thank you so much, Susanna, for being a guest today. Can you begin by sharing a little bit about yourself, your educational background, and how you ended up in your current vocation? Sure. So... About me, I am now an associate professor of English in the Department of English at Hope College, and I teach mainly creative writing, but writing of all sorts, and I knew that I wanted early on in my college career to teach at the college level, but I thought that I might end up as a literature professor and sort of quickly realized that I was not as strong of a scholar of literature as I was someone who liked to play with language and imagine and craft. And the best part about the world of creative writing right now is that it's just blossoming in incredible ways. So I was able to do a master's degree and a PhD in creative writing that blended my love for literature and my work as a writer, which means that I did essentially degrees in literature, but along the way also took creative writing courses, mainly poetry, but also fiction and nonfiction. And then was sort of freed, I I saw it as an emancipation, freed (laughs) from writing a scholarly dissertation or thesis to write uh, creative work. And those both resulted, my master's thesis and my uh, doctoral dissertation resulted in my, my first two books of poetry. So I have veered off from that track a little bit now in terms of poetry and Mm -hmm. am working in other genres. So still doing literary writing. And for many years, I floundered in trying to land a tenure track job as, as many in the Academy do. Sure. And I adjuncted, I did a postdoc, I did visiting assistant professorships, and thankfully, about five years ago, was hired in a tenure track line at Hope College. But I have run the gamut, so to speak, of getting to that point, and maybe, you know, don't have a traditional trajectory 
in some ways I'm really grateful because it makes me much more aware of at this point of uh, hiring practices and mm-hmm. especially especially thinking about women in the academy <laughs> and what CVs look like for a wife and a mother, right? Right. That, that, that they might look a little different as certainly did for me. So I am a wife and a mother also. <laughs> yeah. So before we go back to being a wife and a mother, can you share a little bit more about your first two books? Sure. My first book is called Jagged with Love. And they're poems that I was writing in my early 20s. So the book was published when I was 26. And I think maybe that's how I first met you. And certainly how I first got introduced to InterVarsity. It's doing a reading at University of Wisconsin at Madison. And some wonderful folks there. And That book was selected for the Brittingham Prize in Poetry, which is based at UW-Madison. And I was really investigating forgiveness in those poems um, and thinking about how complex love is. And of course, I was doing it as a a very young... I mean, I look back at myself now, I'm 40, and I I think, wow... Right. I was writing. I was writing about boys and my dad, but that was <laughs> truly a way for me to to investigate longing, and and I know too that that longing was a representation of and a reflection of my desire for God, which then played a part in my second book. So that book is called Entering the House of Awe, uh, drawn from Psalm five. And thinking, of course, more about forgiveness and the complexity of love in that book, just maybe with hopefully with a, a few different avenues to to explore. By that point, I was married and maybe feeling a little more settled in who I was as a person, but of course, still experiencing a great deal of longing and, and a great deal of uncertainty and and wonder, you know, I thought of awe as entering the house of awe as, as not only holy awe, but kind of fear as well, right? That mm-hmm. things that are full of awe, we use that, we use that term awesome so lightly. I do, I do it all the time with my kids. Awesome. In fact, I bought a shirt for my son the other day that said awesome. He's like, mom, I don't really, I don't really like the word awesome. <laughs> I was like, oh, just wait, just wait, right? So we throw that word around, but I really want, I really do want to be aware of how much wonder and strangeness and brokenness is around us. I'm just, I do, I find myself in awe hmm. so much. And so poetry is a wonderful way to sort of explore those things and, mm-hmm. and play with language as we approach our, our fear and our wonder. So, so those are my first two books. Yeah. Thank you for sharing about those. And the one, the second one, Entering the House of Awe, you said it's from Psalm 5, the title or based in Psalm 5. Yeah. Yeah. I had a friend who was helping me. We were listing, you know, images within the book and things that might lead to a thematic understanding of the book. And you know, she was writing down some of these phrases and were maybe 
as Christians familiar with, I will enter the house of the Lord, right? And then we have being full of full of fear and awe at entering the house of the Lord, but but having that as sort of a continual desire. And so I was alighting, entering the house, and then this phrase of awe, p- pushing those two together, making a, a way to, to think about phrases that, that or, or just sit with phrases we might know, but coming to them in a, in a, hopefully in a new way, which is, I think, one of the main endeavors of poetry is coming to things we think we know in a new way. So finding that awe or that coming at things in a new way or finding meaning, even in like simple things or daily tasks, particularly in your career as a professor, what are some of the most meaningful parts of your work or what are some of the things that bring awe, if if that makes sense? Yes. Well, there are a couple parts of my work that do inspire sort of both fear and wonder. I, I feel humbled by the work that I do with students. I, I feel both fear and wonder at inviting them to write. And by what happens in a creative writing classroom is in many ways academic. We're thinking about craft. Uh, we're thinking about technique. We are analyzing. We are exploring. We are recognizing elements and concepts that must be at play in a piece of writing to give it life and and uh, to sustain the energy and create tension. We're right? like there's all these things that we're aware of on an intellectual level. But something that I say to students at the beginning of the year and then of a semester and and then have to sort of continuously remind them and myself is that the work that we do in creative writing is something I cannot teach them, right? I cannot make them be vulnerable. I cannot make them ask questions that matter. I cannot make them sit down and write until they get to, you know, the, the white hot center, Mm-hmm. as Robert Olin Butler would put it, right? I can push them so far, but I can only invite them to open themselves up and to be willing to make themselves deeply vulnerable, sometimes just to themselves. And so sometimes what I say in class is that, that the work that we do takes a kind of energy and attention that other classes are not going to require, right? If you're Mm -hmm. conjugating verbs in Spanish or French or Mandarin, right? Or if you're in a lab and you're investigating the way particles interact and and what molecules do and are under circumstances, you're a brain on a stick at that point. We, most of us are brains on a stick at, at most points in our lives, you know, in our, in our daily lives. And yet, in creative writing, we can spot writing that is just brainy and mm-hmm. not not asking hard questions and mm-hmm. not necessarily arriving at a conclusion or uh, delivering 
a message. There are great spaces for those things. In fact, we, we need conclusions and we need messages. I'm just not sure that literary writing holds those things as well as inquiry and an inquiry that has a kind of heat to it. And so to get back to your question, asking students to do that, right? To walk around campus and sort of be their tidy or untidy selves and, but, you know, arrive to class on time and be prepared. And then the work that we're doing is this truly explosive, self-interrogative work that, you know, when students are able to do that, when they're willing and able to do that, I feel incredible awe and wonder. Mm. And and sometimes I'm incredibly Im- impressed at their technical prowess, like the the craft that they have made themselves mindful of over 15 weeks. It just progresses incredibly. Mm. And then sometimes what I'm in awe of is just how vulnerable and willing they are to move inward right? Or to move outward with a kind of attention that maybe they didn't have before or or hadn't been invited and allowed to attend to things in particular ways. And honestly, that's also what I have to do in my own work. And so it's complementary and I am inspired by my students. They have to work on deadlines, then I need to work on deadlines too. We can't wait for that sort of ridiculous muse to alight we have to you know move move forward even if we aren't feeling it and that's something that brings me joy in the work that I'm doing and reminds me every semester how precious and I don't I don't mean you know saccharine but how how rare and delightful it is to be involved in work that asks something like that from my students and those that I'm inviting towards something. So I studied English with a focus on creative writing in undergrad. Okay. And I can remember my very first assignment of my first creative writing class. Really? It was to write a poem about our first memory. And I remember how Mm. vulnerable it felt to pass (laughs) that to my classmates and we sat in a tables in sort of a square. So we were all facing one another and we, you know, passed, we had to bring 12 copies because there were 12 right. of us. And I think I had to read it out loud even, yeah. and, you know, they, they workshopped it and it was absolutely terrifying. So as soon as you were talking about, before you said the word vulnerable, that was the word that came to mind. Yes. What you're asking students to do or to be, but there was a gift in it. I think that my organic chemistry class that I had the hour before did not give me. Right. They will sometimes say to me, I'm just so grateful that I'm allowed, you know, that this is, this is my homework. And, and that's where I also feel like parents of English majors, and even at the beginning of the semester, people who are taking this class, I say, you know, is there someone who might question why you're doing this? Like, how is this a good use of your liberal arts dollars, right? What is it that you're investing in this? And do you have to defend it to anybody? And, and why, why might that be? And so thinking about 
sort of the the exercise of why we do this and what it means for us as humans and for those of us who are people of faith, sort of that added layer. Why are we doing this and how are we doing this and what does it mean for us? So I'm really glad you had that experience and and that the residual feeling of that did not stay terror, I hope. Oh, no, not. <laughs> it became but a gift. Yes, indeed. So speaking of gratitude, throughout your writing, there's a sense of gratitude or sort of a thread of gratitude that runs through it, even as you write about loss and grief and pain, even in like really intense suffering in your own life, in your community, or even in a broader, more global sense. Can you share more about that theme of gratitude in your life and writing? I am grateful for that question because I don't often feel like I'm practicing gratitude well. (laughs) And one, I love that someone would see that in my work because I do have this sort of of two minds about gratitude. And one is that there are some of us who naturally gravitate towards delight focusing on goodness and aware of of pleasure and and light and then there are others of us who have to work at it maybe everyone has to work at it i don't know and the people who are able to do it just that that work is invisible i've been in seasons of my life where it is not much work there's just a lot of as it were organic delight and wonder and pleasure in in the daily and then of course uh, especially in recent seasons where i have struggled incredibly through grief depression and heaviness of spirit i've had to work really hard at it and often feel as though i'm failing at it like i i go whole weeks and don't naturally, you know, feel thankful for something. And so I have to practice it. And in that way, I am glad that I am aware of it as a kind of discipline, that it isn't just because I'm not feeling it naturally doesn't mean I don't need to pursue it and invite it and and recognize it as a, as a labor, right? That you, there are times when you work towards gratitude it isn't just gifted to you or isn't just fall you don't fall into it naturally my other feeling about gratitude is that it can be a knee-jerk reaction of christians to suggest that that is our prevailing sensibility right that if we're moving towards redemption then we count it all joy, right? Mm -hmm. Even scripture would seem to sort of back that up. And yet I think there is incredible power and work to be done in lament and in recognizing the reasons we are lamenting. And so the work that we must do towards gratitude is maybe going to look slower or thicker <laughs> for some than others. I'm, you know, I'm thinking 
about the most joyful people in my life who at every turn urge me towards joy. I, I'm glad for that. And I'm also not that person. So mm. the work that I do to move towards gratitude doesn't look like the work they do to work towards gratitude. And I think that probably comes out in my my writing in the ebbs and the flows because exuberance itself is a kind of gratitude, right? Like recognizing the muchness of this world and sort of the surprise of language even for me is a kind of gratitude that we mm. have words and that we have ways to speak things into being and recognition, speak things into recognition and and maybe validation. So I definitely sense a kind of gratitude in my work because of the exuberance I have or the muchness I have about life and living. And yet I also think that there might even be a way to, I hope, recognize gratitude and slowness or heaviness moving towards gratitude. And that it isn't maybe always going to be apparent. Yeah. And even going back to your, uh, I think it was a definition you gave at the beginning of poetry or creative writing in general, being looking at things from a different angle, sort of can be the poetry could be an exploration of your own suffering or the suffering in the world. Related to that, in an essay you wrote several years ago entitled Retroactive Empathy, A Haunting, you do that very thing. You explore your own grief and that place in grief where you were lamenting and in mm-hmm. in the midst of the suffering, but also at the same time sort of required by society to move on, to go do the things you have to do as a mother, as a professor, you know, even just going to the store and buying groceries. I mean, the daily tasks that we have to accomplish. Yeah. And yet also being in the midst of grief. What thoughts would you have to offer on navigating that space where you are required to continue on and and move on, but also still explore that grief? I'm so grateful for this question because I said that about the last question too. I'm grateful for it. But I, I this is the kind of question that allows me to speak about something really devastating. And I often find that people would rather move away from that, both sort of personal in a, in a personal space and definitely in, an, in a professional space. People do not want to engage or invite conversation about suffering or how we're not doing well, right? Like let's, let's right. compartmentalize that. So thank you for this question. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, so to, to help listeners with understanding the context of this essay, in January of 2014, I delivered a baby who died in utero deep into the second trimester. Our son Jericho would have, would have been our third son. And I was actually, I don't know that this made it into the essay itself, I was actually interviewing for the job that I now hold. And, and by that, I mean, I delivered my son on January 3rd. The semester started on January 6th. I had my interview on February 1st. So just days and weeks into this. And in, and in fact, I was an internal candidate. So for anybody who's done this, it's basically, you know, just a years long, months long interview. You're 
everybody can see what you're doing all the time and keeping that in mind to collect and compare with other candidates. In fact, I was one of four finalists. The other three were men and Mm. we were all going to be, you know, visiting campus. I was quote visiting campus, but I was already there. Right. To say, and and I'd been hiding my pregnancy. I just, um, it was, I I was almost to a point where there was no way anybody wasn't going to see it, but I'd just totally secreted it, hoping that I could get through the interview process. And then I had lost the baby. And so I went through that grieving process in many ways alone, not personally, but professionally. No one knew that I was pregnant. And so then no mm-hmm. one knew that I'd, you know, lost a baby and, and a, a baby that I held and a baby that we, you know, had to, to figure out, are we going to bury this baby? We're going to have a service. It's just incredibly... Yeah incredibly heartbreaking and having to pretend that I was okay in the middle of all of that so that my colleagues wouldn't wonder about me. I have a lot to say about that on maybe a a professional front for women, but I will say that that experience of having to act as though my loss and my grief did not exist was incredibly damaging. Mm. I saw this quote the other day, and I didn't get a chance to listen to the interview, but Tish Harrison Warren, who I believe has had some infant loss, the the subtitle for this interview, you know, sort of the catchphrase was, if we don't recognize grief, it comes out sideways, something like Mm. that. And that resonated with me very deeply because, so on a personal front, I was able to grieve my friends knew, my family knew, and they were bringing us meals. I, I, you know, I had two very small children, a, a mm-hmm. one and a half year old and a three and a half year old. So in some ways I also had to hide it in my home, but I could cry late into the night and all of that. And, and yet not being able to bear my grief in public was painful and damaging and trying to continue on with daily tasks, teaching, you know, and, and we were at one point doing elegies in class, right? And I mm. struggled incredibly with that. There were a lot of times where I would fake a coughing fit so that people wouldn't know the tears in my eyes were were from emotional pain and, and not me coughing, right? Like that kind of thing where I was just covering it up and hiding it. As you can imagine, that that's not good for the psyche, for the <laughs> spirit. But I also feel like just in general, so I, I went on to have two more miscarriages mm-hmm. um, in somewhat close succession. And what I what I also found is that the process, the work of grief is not linear. Many of us know this, but many right, of us right. don't, right? I mean, even calling it a process is maybe a generous term, right? That mm-hmm. it's this really mysterious movement of the self towards and away pain. And I, I was seeing a spiritual director at the time who was so helpful to me. And something he said was that grief is inconvenient to other people. Mm. Pretty much in general, grief is is inconvenient. And culturally, that's how we carry forth, right? Like other cultures 
non-Western cultures and certainly in, a, in previous eras, Western culture was able to recognize and sit with grief in a much more overt and direct ways, right? Even in, in scripture, you, you have people who wail and rip their right. clothes and yeah. walk through the streets screaming. And, and we, when we sort of process together in that, and certainly we have our own cultural markers for death, but I don't know that we recognize or sit with grief uh, well. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that was my experience was that my grief was pretty inconvenient for other people which made the daily tasks that much harder. So I was profoundly thankful for the people who had already been through this, not just with stillbirth and miscarriage, but any kind of like devastating loss, right? That we could sort of smell it in each other. Oh yeah. 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 You, you recognize just the the crestfallenness of someone it's in their face it's in their body it's in their voice you you can see it in each other now and and it's so meaningful for me to have had those people and i want to make room for that in the lives of those who are encountering me now right that are experiencing devastating loss that we can recognize it in each other and not have to carry forth, just sally forth and mm-hmm. pretend that everything's okay. Yeah. And then kind of related, you wrote another poem entitled When at Night Zane Says His Prayers. And you tackle the complexity of emotions around a child in your neighborhood who is suffering from cancer. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it kind of is the age-old question. Why, why do you think God allows suffering or, you know, and everyone, I think, asks this question, even at all stages of life. Right. Children ask it in a different way, but even grown adults, why does God let bad things happen to good people? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not expecting you to have the, the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I feel incredibly ill-equipped to theologize suffering in any way, I think there are people who are so much more informed, but also articulate and poised about this. And yet I, I'll say that I've done a lot of reading now, not on the theology of suffering, but works of, of lamentation, writers that are engaging with these questions via personal narrative. That's where I sort of can can check into this as an intellectual enterprise or exercise. Even then, in some ways, I think of it as pretty inexplicable and maybe as ill-equipped to convince us of God's presence or God's kindness as if we were looking to a theology related to ecstasy, right? Like, I'm not sure how to approach extremes and what those states or stations mean for us as humans. And I am grateful for the term that was uh, introduced to me by a pastor friend in a sermon just this weekend. Dominic Palacios was talking about wilderness, that there's a, you know, that that's one of the theological terms for reckoning with suffering. 
Mm. And that is a metaphor. So I can get into that, right? Like recognizing what it might need to be in a place or a space that you're moving through, that you stay in for a long time in which hardship is immediate and overbearing and deeply threatening. And why, why must we be there? I, I hesitate even with that, the why, because I'm not sure that that's the, the right question. I mean, it's innate for us to ask why, but one of the more meaningful questions, and again, for me, so much is about questioning, right? Um, mm-hmm. One of the really meaningful questions is not why, but how or what, right? Like what now or how is this how is this happening what does its happening mean Mm, yeah maybe where is this taking me what is this doing so those questions are really painful but I feel like they're maybe more approachable than why I'm actually working on a book of essays about this season in my life and so there's a million directions I could go with this, but something that was really important to me was this prayer, which I think is also sort of understood as a poem by Tehard de Chardin, Trust in the Slow Work of God. And it's all about recognizing how hard it is to be in the middle of suffering, but moving towards an understanding that this is the slow work of God, right? In the, in the depth of my grief, even that was kind of an offensive phrase to me um, oh, or, yeah. or just hard, harmful, right? Like how could this be work and why is it so slow? And how is this of God? But I loved these lines. We're quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages You're impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. Later, he writes, Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that God's hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. I was really resistant to being soothed and calmed out of this. One, because as I I mentioned in a a previous question, I felt like it was a way of silencing or dismissing me. Mm. I'm not saying everyone did that, but right, like that's one of our go-tos as Christians. We point towards the thing that's at the end that is going to, you know, make all things new and make all things right. And so we keep our eye on that and we let the things of this world go, you know, grow strangely dim. That's a great way to ignore <laughs> other people's pain. And I don't, I don't know that we mean to do it, but I really feel like if we could recognize this as slow work, it's sort of impossibly maybe meaninglessly slow work, even that is a step, right? Even that is like a billowing faith to believe that it could do or mean something. 
and also recognizing that we like I just I really want to resist that we could even know what that work is and there's a there's a phrase in memoir writing called redemption narratives like it's a whole trope right like we're just going to take this whole hard journey recognize where we end up and wasn't it all worth it and that gets really complex as christians because I'm just really troubled by that phrase, isn't it all worth it? It's such a cheap, sad way of recognizing the incredibly complex rebuilding of self. If there, if, if even that, I don't even know if the word rebuilding is, is worthy as a metaphor, right? But maybe being led, being in suspense, being incomplete, that the work that that does, can we resist at the end, whatever, you know, so now that I've, I've had a living child, I sometimes encounter people who want to say, wasn't it all worth it? Or who in their demeanor and in their behavior, they just feel so relieved now that I'm over that season. And I, I want to find a way for us to sit with one another in that place of incompletion, in that place of suspension, without soothing away pain and and saying it's going to be all worth it at you know or and and maybe some people would even feel that saying that this is god's work is a kind of soothing but whatever slow steps we can take towards reckoning with what being in the wilderness means and is and not rushing to i'm fixed i'm cured i'm healed or you know lobbing our redemption narratives on one another as proof of how that could work because it's just they're all so individual right and so particular and for many of us there will be years maybe decades of being in suspense and and incomplete for any number of reasons divorce and joblessness or right like all kinds of things that mean that we are walking through a wilderness so I, I don't think I can answer that question at all, except that if we want to honor each other and the image of God in one another, can we sit with each other's really hard questioning about that without like leaping to explain or soothe? Can we be comfortable with hopelessness and despair and just trust that something might come out of that? Because someone going through that, right, someone walking through that is maybe different than someone intellectually wanting to spar about God because of this issue of suffering. That that may be a whole different question, um, oh, yeah. right? But when there is a personal experience attached to suffering, I think we, we I want to be really quiet and careful. And I don't mean silent because they need to hear from us, but quiet in terms of listening to that it was so meaningful for people to let me rage and let me lament and I think the psalms are full of that right so we have pretty good models for it but it's uncomfortable and I also don't know that we will know answers so much as we will sit inside our questions 
thank you for sharing about your loss of your son, Jericho. I think that's something for sure that women aren't permitted to talk about from Mm -hmm. society at large. And it's interesting even to hear about having to hide your pregnancy in Mm -hmm. academia. That, I mean, that says Mm -hmm. something in and of itself. Kind of going back to then your role as a wife and a mother as well, can you share a little bit about what works in your family? What has been good? What hasn't worked well? How do you balance it all? There is no way I can answer this question without saying I have not figured it out. And it's annoying to still be in a place, my oldest child is is almost nine and we we just are constantly revisiting this question. How, how does this work? How is, how are things going? (laughs) How can we do a better job of balancing? So one thing I would, would just suggest is that, and many others have too, is that comparison is really unhelpful. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm at a place in my life where I kind of weed out the people that I want to know the the sort of inner workings like how do you make space and time or how do you do what you do I really only want to hear from women of small children because <laughs> or single parents right of, of small right. children I feel as though we are moving towards greater understanding of how to share responsibilities within the home and and culturally shifting domestic expectations but I am overwhelmed pretty much all the time. In fact, I'm not sure I have advice to that except to say there are many women out there struggling with how to balance. And what one person suggests is is maybe going to be like, oh, a little treasure. And then almost everything else is not going to be helpful. <laughs> so it is really helpful to have clear communication with your partner Mm -hmm. and something that's been amazing is that Josh has initiated weekly meetings where we sit down and sort of hash out what's going to happen in the the next week or a couple weeks month so that we're anticipating those things together and that has been a gift because we do get lost in the details and you know as is recognized women carry a substantial part of the domestic burden the primary caretaking things like that so being clear about what's working and what isn't is is really important and the other thing is that for us it's not ever going to work to have both Josh and me work full-time. Our family is not equipped for that. We are both neurodivergent. We both have sort of our own disorders and don't function fully, right? The way that, that we are maybe expected to. And so in times where Josh has worked full-time, I have not. And right now, I for, for the last five years, I've been working full-time and he is not. And we don't see that as a sacrifice. That's honestly just what we have to do to function. The, the, what we sacrifice, of course, is feeling superhuman. We just will never be that or, or do that. So like this is my spring break. And like the big coup de gras is that my toilets are clean. Like that. Is- <laughs> 
<laughs> I have gotten no writing done. I right, like it's I am I am constantly shifting and balancing and and compromising and soothing myself to to recognize that there are seasons and giving myself the opportunity not to compare myself mm-hmm. um, or forgiving myself when I do and recognizing that that's not what's going to help me move towards the goals I want to reach. Yeah, I appreciate you saying not to compare because I think you're right in that there's so much we can look at somebody else and see what they're doing and think that's what I ought to be doing as well. Mm-hmm. If she can mm-hmm. do it, surely I should be able to right. do it. But yeah, maybe not. <laughs> and I was at a baby shower last weekend and we were asked, you know, they had the diaper cake, right? Where the diapers are all rolled up mm-hmm. and this fancy cake, which is not something that I could even create if I wanted to. <laughs> but we were asked, you know, write on a piece of paper and a word of advice or, or whatever. And roll it up and stick it in one of the diapers for, you know, later on, once the baby is born, they'll, you know, be unrolling a diaper and changing a diaper. And there's a moment <laughs> to read this, this word. Of advice. <laughs> right. And it's a great idea in theory. That when moment out, will not happen. Yeah. You're not going to have the time to read a note while you're changing a diaper. But also I was like, what advice can I even give? Yeah. I will not have any idea. Yeah, where, oh. what these, like what will be going on right. for this this couple and for its right. first baby? So I'm like, I'm not going to write advice. What do I have to offer? I mean, mm-hmm. I do have three children, but every child is different, oh and every goodness. scenario is different. Yes. I wrote something like, "You're doing a great job." <laughs> yeah, just to be encouraged, right? Like this yeah. is hard, and let's not pretend it's not hard. And, and hey, good on you, right? Like, that's what I would have liked in a diaper right. that, right? Because if someone had given me some, and that's where I, I can't offer advice about how to balance your life and work, except to say, if you are struggling, like I'm struggling, then sister, right? Like, right. it's a struggle. And let's, let's not pretend it's not. And give your, like, I was, I don't know why I got on Facebook. I've just basically given up social media entirely. And I got it on last night and seriously, five minutes in the thought going through my mind was what have I done with my life? Like, what have I done with my life? Right? Like that is, (laughs) so I just can't, I can't see it's hard to, to feel like other people are publishing and, you know, going to conferences and presenting this or teaching this new class or doing, or even taking their kids to this or that or enrolling them and having them. I, it's just, I am really only able to, to look so far ahead, pretty much a week and squirrel out for myself, tiny pockets where maybe I shave and maybe I read a poem, right? Like (laughs) it is, it's, it's hard and, and it's good hard, but I know I don't have much advice on that end. It's great. Cause I don't know that we're actually looking for advice, <laughs> <laughs> but there's, tre- there are treasures, as you said earlier, yes. there's a treasure in there for someone. So hopefully the listeners will, will receive a treasure from, from right. that bit of conversation. If, right. If nothing else. So, and if not, we just, we just move on and find the person who can give you a treasure. So exactly. Yeah. Um, but solidarity, there's solidarity, mm-hmm. solidarity 
where we're in it together instead of, you know, comparing ourselves to one another right? to bring that encouragement, right. like good job on cleaning the toilet. Yes. You Thank know. you. Thank you. <laughs> Welcome. And yes. Thank I don't you. know. What I, I don't know what I've done this week that you can congratulate. I was going to say you're, you're performing a podcast right now in the middle Recording of all the pod- things. That's right. And I did, did one on Monday when my kids didn't have school and I thought oh they did. Yes. Incredible. Right. Feats, almost unimaginable feats right here. I'm serious. That's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Well, then to totally shift gears, in several of your essays and poems, you use language that perhaps in many Christian circles, people would find themselves really offended by. Can you share a little bit about your thoughts on the power of language and how you choose whether or not to use, quote unquote, strong language in your work or, or speech? Mm-hmm. I feel as though we have, I don't know if problem is too hard of a um, too tough of a term, but uh, sort of a, a difficulty with language as humans, certainly, but also as Christians. And I feel like it's twofold, and probably many more fold than that, but two is what I can get to. One is that we take very seriously what is or, or have, you know, these pretty rigid understandings of what's appropriate and what's offensive. And I completely recognize why that is so and what's important about being aware of what's coming out of your mouth and what words are coming from you. I also really struggled for a time as a writer with and I'm I'm just going to have to use another metaphor, feeling corseted with our understandings of what's offensive or what's appropriate. And I I think about the the corset. I sometimes use this metaphor with my students that there was a time when culturally women were expected to stuff themselves into these whalebone corsets and with essentially huge shoelaces at the back and just squeeze themselves in Mm. right? To create a kind of shape that was pleasing or acceptable or appropriate. And I think language as a representation of human experience ought not have such rigid strictures. And, and that, you know, that's a, the, the course it was culturally imposed and damaging and thankfully is completely fallen out of fashion. And I'm not saying that uh, scripture tells us to guard your mouth. I absolutely believe that the mouth, the tongue is a rudder for the ship, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to remember exactly where in James that was, but I was a child who had an issue with self-control. And so that was a, a scripture which I became deeply familiar with. And I thoroughly believe that that's true, that we are guided or um, controlled even by the the language that exits us. But I also believe that what is appropriate or offensive can be really limiting and is in some ways can be this small understanding 
of what it might mean to express ourselves and be human. And so if there is experience that warrants what some people would recognize as strong or foul language, I am not doing it without purpose or meaning. Like, let that be a signal for something. <laughs> let right. it be a representation for something much deeper, right? That, that, that's, the to- that's the little tool I have to try and get at something much, much bigger and deeper. I really love this, this quote by Annie Dillard. She says, all those things for which we have no words, they're lost. The mind, the culture has two little tools, grammar and lexicon, a decorated sand bucket and a matching shovel. With these, we bluster about the continents and do all the world's work. With these, we try to save our very lives. Hmm. And I, I really do think that we have these very inept instruments by which to give meaning to our lives, to our experiences, and, and they fail us and we fail them, right? They're tools and they will not do the job. And also we won't use them properly, but our understanding of what proper is, I think mm. probably is not, not thorough enough. I also think of John Updike's quote in his memoir, which is really important to me as an undergrad, my mentor, Mary Brown helped me walk through a lot of this thinking and and processing and struggling. John Updike writes, God is not shocked. Only truth, however harsh, is holy. And I do think that the instruments by which we're trying to get at truth might seem unholy, but the act of moving towards truth is holy and so on one hand working to discern where is my rudder taking me and on the other hand this this rudder that i have right what other kind of tool is it and how how am i doing work with it and how is my tool failing me how am i failing my tool and what freedom is there in not having certain ideas about what work the tools can do? I think I'm used about seven metaphors in that answer. <laughs> they all made sense. Even, even so. here, my tools, right? Like right, I'm absolutely. failing them. They're failing me. But gosh, no. such good work, right? Yeah. So then finally, related to the power of words, is there a set of words, scripture or a quote or song lyrics that have spoken to you and been meaningful for you lately? I am reading Ross Gay's Book of Delights. He's a poet who just, speaking of gratitude, he is a a poet of gratitude. His last book of poems is called Catalog of unabashed gratitude. He's got this book of essays that I'm reading and I could just read a ton of it to you, but there's this one moment that I think is really important. He's working through a list of things that are really hard, right? And not just his own, but people around him in profound personal sorrow, brother addicted, mother murdered, dad died in surgery, rejected by the family, cancer came back, evicted, fetus not okay, everyone regardless, always of everything. Not to mention the existential sorrow we might all be afflicted with, which is that we 
and what we love will soon be annihilated, which sounds more dramatic than it might. Let me just say dead. Is this sorrow of which our impending being no more might be the foundation, the great wilderness? Is sorrow the true wild? And if it is, and if we join them, your wild to mine, what's that? For joining too is a kind of annihilation. What if we joined our sorrows, I'm saying? I'm saying, what if that is joy? Beautiful. Right? <laughs> oh, I'm a little teary. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that and speaks to so many of the things we've been talking about, the wilderness and the, the joining and just even the saying, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time and for your words, uh, sharing with us all of those things for this hour. We really appreciate yeah. it. You're very welcome, Caroline. Thank you for joining us for this episode of All Shall Be Well, Conversations with Women in the Academy and Beyond. This is Caroline Trissick, and information about our guests can be found on our podcast page at thewell.intervarsity.org slash podcasts. This has been a production of Women in the Academy and Professions, a focused ministry initiative of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship USA. We value the contribution of podcast guests who are not employed by InterVarsity, and we acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may or may not represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. Thank you for joining our conversation as we engage in faith and life together. We'd love to hear your feedback. To share your thoughts or to learn more about who we are or the resources and connections we provide, we invite you to visit us at our online gathering place, The Well. You can find us at thewell.intervarsity.org.